you can be seated. Welcome to all of you watching online this morning as well. Glad you can join us, join us online. Well, in the very first sentence, we see the overarching purpose of this book. It is the revelation of Jesus. We grow in our connection with him through this book. That is why we are employing it in our rotation of preaching. As we move between the Old Testament and the Gospels and the New Testament, we have placed this series in the Gospel category because Jesus is at the very center of this book. Now, is Jesus the revealer or is he the one being revealed? Well, the answer is yes and yes. He is both the revealer and the object of revelation. Did you notice the specific transmission of this revelation reinforcing Jesus as the ultimate source? It works from Jesus to an angel to John. And we understand this to be the same John who was a friend and a disciple of Jesus. John is called as a witness to everything that he saw. So the book is first about Jesus. It is meant to reveal more of his nature, more of his person, and more of his wonder. But we often miss Jesus in this very book. I heard a story in the radio this week that illustrates seeing only one dimension of a person. It was 1845 in the hometown of Beethoven. Anybody know the hometown of Beethoven? Thank you, thank you, Cal. Bonn, Germany. And it was the celebration to, to celebrate the anniversary of his 75th birthday. And so they erected a statue of Beethoven, the first one to be erected, in the Central Square Market. And it created such a stir that visitors came from all over Europe into this small town of 5,000. And they were overwhelmed and unprepared in the audience at the unveiling of the statue were the Prussian King Frederick Wilhelm IV and the British Queen, Queen Victoria. The King and Queen, along with other dignified guests, sat in the grandstands waiting with eager anticipation for the cloth covering of the statue to fall. And when it fell with much fanfare, to their surprise, they saw the back of Beethoven. The organizers, in their haste, had set up the grandstand on the wrong side. That was a bad day for the organizers. Now, I don't want to stretch this analogy too far, but without seeing Jesus in Revelation, we too are missing a main feature of who he is. Imagine knowing someone, a close friend, or even your spouse, whom you assume you know everything there is to know about them. Yet you're missing a significant part of their history, or there is a characteristic that you've never encountered. This happened to me recently, not with Louise, but with a, a, a friend. I mean, wouldn't you want to know that? Revelation reveals a dimension of Jesus that we need. The book of Revelation reveals Jesus after his resurrection, after his ascension to heaven, and after his enthronement as king. He is no longer only a lamb. He is now also a lion. 
Is that the Jesus that you know? It is tempting to miss this with the book of Revelation, and I know I have. A commentator from Ligonier Ministries wrote this. Since it was written, the book of Revelation has been one of the most beloved and controversial books of the New Testament. It has occupied a central place in the discussion of eschatology. Now, that's just a fancy word for the doctrine of last things, the doctrine of how the world will come to its conclusion. And people continue to debate the complex imagery found in the book and what it says about the end times. But what is often missed in these eschatological discussions, however, is that the book is less about foreseeing a definite sequence of end time events and more about revealing the exalted Christ in his glory and in his power. Fundamentally, this book is about the triumph of our Savior over all his enemies and his reign over all his creation. Now, this is not to say that the future events of Revelation are unimportant, nor is their study unimportant. Indeed, in verse 1, it says Jesus is said to show his servants what soon must take place. And so we have a desire to know the future, yet we must not miss the unique revelation of Jesus as Lord of Lord and King of Kings, as he, he is so titled in chapter 19. One who is ruling now, even now with unparalleled authority. So this is the purpose of this series. It is focusing on him. It is experiencing his presence walking among us and understanding the unique message for the church today. And if you think this is merely academic, or if you think this is so heavenly, it will make no difference to us today, then listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote. The reality of Jesus' present nature and person captured captivated Paul's heart. And it propelled the Apostle Paul forward with passion towards the Great Commission. That being Jesus' call for the church to go and make disciples from every nation in the world. Look at Ephesians 1, if you would, with me for a moment. Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 19. And Paul here is speaking of the resurrection of Jesus. And then Paul makes this staggering statement that the same power that rose Jesus from the dead is available to us. Let's pick it up in the middle of verse 19. And is incomparably Jesus's incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. And now here's his picture of Christ as he is. Seated him in his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed Jesus to be head over everything for the church, 
which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Now, listen to this. Paul's very concept of who Jesus is now. His position, Jesus is in the universe. His role and authority over every spiritual being in heaven and earth. What he is doing presently to lead his church. The church's relationship with an enthroned savior. All of this was not just dead or neat sounding fluffy theology in Paul's heart. It shaped his core. It helped him, it shaped his understanding of what could happen through his life and through the life of the church in real time and real history. You might ask the question, where do you see the great commission in this verse. It's in verse 22. Jesus is head over the church and we are the fullness of him, meaning he recreates his life and ministry through the church. To what end? That he might fill everything in every way. Everything? Yes, Everything, In other words, that his presence and his message might encompass the entire world such that there will be worship of Jesus from every nation and the reality of Jesus acknowledged in every human heart. Paul was captured with who Jesus is now. Now, before we go to the next point, I want you to take just a moment and look again at verse 1 and verse 3. Verse 1 and verse 3. So we're on the point of Jesus revealed. We're going to go to a second how Jesus, Jesus revealed to the church. But before we do that, I want to just spend a moment on some very conf confusing points from Revelation. Notice in verse 1, it says that these events will take place in the future. They're soon to take place. Verse 1 says, show his servants what soon must take place. And verse 3 says, the time is near. Now, the most significant event described in Revelation is the second coming of Jesus. Now, if you're not sure what that means, the second coming of Jesus is a point in history where Jesus will return a second time, this time not to die, but rather to reign, to govern, to rule, and to establish a new kingdom. And this return dominates the landscape of Revelation's climax. Now, if the assumption is that this future event mentioned at the outset refers to the second coming of Jesus, well then how does this sense of imminence, it's going to happen soon, square with the 2,000 years plus that have elapsed since it was written. Now, this is honestly a dilemma, and it has been a, a point that skeptics of the Christian faith have pointed out. Now, there have been many attempts to reconcile this apparent contradiction, and right here I'm going to stop and make you mad at me. What I've done is there are, I have... I have 
listed in your sermon notes four different approaches that uh, Christians have taken throughout the years that attempts to reconcile this seeming lapse of time. How do these verses that indicate something's going to happen very soon, how can it be such that here we are 2,000 years later and the event hasn't taken place yet? So I'd encourage you, they are in the sermon notes. Uh, again, it's, it's, it's somewhat complex to go through it here in this setting, but I think they are uh, quite clearly explained, and you can look at those. Again, I, I, would, I would simply mention here that even by 60 AD, even 30 years after uh, those words were written, or those things were said by Jesus about the soon return, even 30 years later, skeptics were saying, where is this coming of the Jesus? Where is this coming? And if you read 2 Peter 3.8, you'll see one of the solutions that Christians have given through the years to try to deal with this contradiction. All right, so you can check that out in your sermon notes. And I'll mention as well at this point, there's a great book, if you're looking for a way to try to begin to understand some of the complexities of Revelation, I would say a great book, a book that's very fair in its presentations, is a book called Four Views by Stephen Gregg. Now those four views don't line up with the four things I've mentioned. But Stephen Gregg wrote a book called Four Views. It describes the whole book of Revelation and describes the four basic schools of thought that Christians have employed to try to understand the book of Revelation. If you want to do a deeper dive study, that would be a great place to begin. All right? So that's point one, Jesus revealed. Let's go to point two, Jesus revealed in the church. You know, when we think about this book of Revelation and its role in our lives, it is essential to remember it is a book written to seven first century churches. The whole book of Revelation is a circular letter, meaning the order in which those cities are listed is likely consistent with how a messenger delivered them to those churches. Now those churches, if you want to look at it, they are listed. Those seven are listed. I think it's in verse 11. They're referred to in verse 4. And Tyler, let's just go ahead and throw up this map. I'm not sure if you can read this or not. But the seven cities, you can see, begins with Ephesus, then Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And you can see that the messenger... The messenger would have begun here on this, on the western edge of Asia Minor. They would have begun in Ephesus and then gone in a circle delivering these letters to these churches. All right? Now, these are all, these are all real cities in a place called Asia Minor located today in modern-day Turkey. And throughout chapters 2 and 3, there is an individual message to each of these churches. And we'll do a message on each of those letters to the individual churches. That'll be seven messages coming up. Okay? So this is who Revelation is addressed to. Real people in the first century. Who is the letter from? Go back to verse 4, if you would. You know, we're used to, 
in the letters greetings, we're used to Paul saying something like what we saw in our Philippian study. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But capture the difference in this opening. Very interesting. First, every member of the Trinity is captured. And then secondly, notice the descriptors that are given to every member of the Trinity. The gravitas that is added. For example, the Father is described as he who was and who is and who is to come. A magnificent and weighty title for God the Father that will be repeated in verse 8. And then for the Holy Spirit, the seven spirits before the throne represent the Holy Spirit. Now, this can be a little confusing. Seven spirits before the throne. Well, the Holy Spirit is not seven separate beings. This is likely a reference to the sevenfold Spirit of God and his various titles and ministries referenced in Isaiah chapter 11. And now here's a real key to understanding the book of Revelation. Seven is a number in the Bible that means completeness or fullness or perfection. So in other words, this letter is from the fullness of the Spirit. But why does this description happen here? Why this description? Again, here's another key to understanding the book of Revelation. Because John has been transported to the very throne of heaven, and he is now seeing reality from a deeper and truer place. This understanding will help us interpret the book throughout our, understand, throughout, throughout our, our messages. Dennis Johnson captured the beauty of this when he wrote, in effect, our hearts long to see the big picture, the meaning beyond the details. And that's what John is given to pass on to the churches from this perspective of heaven. Jesus is the one who makes sense of our history. And Jesus is the one who makes sense of our experience. Now, as another aside, this is as good a time to mention as any, that most of the numbers in Revelation have spiritual significance. And that was very common to the uh, um, apocalyptic, forgot how to say that word for a moment, brain didn't work, that was very natural for the apocalyptic literature common to the first century. Along with the heavy use of representational, sometimes bizarre imagery, Revelation fits into a literary genre that the first generation of readers were familiar with. Seems strange to us, but apocalyptic literature was not strange to them. The believers, therefore, had some context in order to understand the numbers we find in Revelation, as well as some of the bizarre imagery. Okay, again, some of these things will help you understand the book of Revelation. Okay, so going back to who the letter is from, it is from God the Father, in verse 5, it is from Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, and it is from Jesus Christ, and notice how he is described, three things. One, faithful witness. Two, firstborn from the dead. And three, ruler of the kings of the earth. Every title was incredibly relevant to what those churches were facing.
Every facet of Jesus' character for these churches was needed for them to be able to lean into. It was an incredibly difficult time to be a follower of Jesus. We get this both from evidence within the letter as well as from history. For example, within Revelation, Antipas, who will meet a faithful witness of Jesus, was put to death in Pergamum. The Christians in Philadelphia, that's not Pennsylvania, are noted, interesting, they're noted for having little strength, but they have kept Jesus' words and not denied his name. The implication is that compromise was happening all over, and compromise was a real temptation. In chapter 6, verse 9, in the opening of the fifth seal, John sees, quote, souls of those who have been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. And we could continue to point to numerous examples of martyrdom within the book of Revelation. Within the witness of history, if Revelation indeed was written about 90 AD, that's not conclusive, but many believe that, it was during the reign of the Roman emperor Domitian. A picture of this interesting guy. Now, Duval and Hayes, in their book, they cite the standard historians of that day, all the famous historians, who characterized Domitian as savage, cruel, devious, sexually immoral, mad, and evil. He then cites the description from Pliny about Domitian's palace. Here's what Pliny wrote. It is the place where the fearful monster built his defenses with untold terrors, where lurking in his den, he licked up the blood of his murdered relatives or emerged to plot the massacre and destruction of his most distinguished subjects. Menaces and horrors were the sentinels at his door. Always he sought the darkness and mystery and only emerged from the desert of his solitude to create another. This is the world that these Christians were living in. And I've mentioned this before, so forgive me for repeating it, but Domitian, as well as the other Caesars, wanted their subjects to address him as, quote, our Lord and God. Now, the Christians' basic confession was, Jesus is Lord. And in that, it was an unabashed pledge of devotion to Jesus over the state. And it carried with it political implications and consequences because Christians could not make the required sacrifice in the pagan temples. And those sacrifices, as I've said, were so important because the sacrifices to the pagan god would ensure, and this is what had been their experience for the Rome, would experience victory in battle and peace within their borders. It's what was called the Pax Romana. And if you didn't sacrifice, you threatened to upset that delicate balance. So if you didn't sacrifice, you betrayed the state. You betrayed the government. And Domitian and other Caesars went terribly hard after believer, after believer, after believer in many of the ancient Roman cities. Now, on top of all this, when this letter hit the churches, what do we know about them? They were a hot mess. 
Ephesus had forsaken her first love. Some in Pergamum and Thyatira were following false teachers. Sardis had a reputation for being alive, but was spiritually dead. Those in Laodicea were lukewarm, and Jesus is about to spit them out. Revelation, the book sought to comfort and assure these first century Christians, those suffering persecution, and warn those tempted to compromise by seeking to avoid persecution. Craig Keener wrote this, that Revelation speaks to churches both alive and dead, but more of the churches are in danger of compromising with the world than dying from it. Some reverted to Judaism, a legal religion in the empire in order to escape trouble. Others joined trade guilds to avoid economic difficulty. But those in trade guilds often had to participate in these idolatrous worships and, and pagan festivals. Still others were led astray by false teachers. The Christians receiving this letter needed every characteristic that Jesus could offer. Jesus was a faithful witness to God. He spoke only what was true. He held on to truth under pressure. Can I trust that he loves me? Those Christians asked, can I follow his example of patient endurance? He was the firstborn from the dead. Can I trust him to resurrect me if I lose my life for the gospel? He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Can I believe that? amidst all the chaos around me? Can I believe that with Domitian sitting on the throne? Can I believe that when every scrap of evidence I have in front of me tells me that God and the church is losing? These were churches with problems. They needed reassurance, they needed comfort, they needed courage, they needed a grasp on what is real. They were tempted to compromise, they were tempted to quit. They were churches like ours. We are experiencing pressure. Not quite the same as they were. Pressure exerted to bend on things that we believe. Things related to sexual ethics or things related to the supremacy of Jesus over all religions. You know, there's pressure all over the world being exerted on Christians. I, I have a friendship with a man from, I don't want to share his name or picture, I have a friendship with a man from Myanmar, a pastor to whom I have visited and joined with him and his family and, and spoken uh, to a, a group of pastors in the community that he uh, is a part of outside of Yangon, the capital city. And I had lost touch with him. He was emailing and wasn't getting any responses, emailing and wasn't getting any responses, wasn't sure what was going on. And I, I knew already the pressure that this family was under. Uh, th there was a lot of economic pressure. A lot of Christians are unable to buy a home unless they sign certain documents in Myanmar that would reveal their allegiance to Buddhism. For just example, uh, there have been many Christians that have been uh, pressured or, or, or attacked without any um, justice, without any reprise from the government. And then I began, as I was following him on uh, uh, Facebook as best I could, it looked to me like he had actually become a member of the government. 
it looked to me that he had actually become a member of the parliament in Myanmar. And uh, so I thought, wow, I'm not sure if he's doing ministry and he's not, you know, he's not calling me back. I'm just not sure what's going on with him. So at 3.30 last night, I get a phone call. <laughs> and I, I grab my phone and I look at it and it's my friend from Myanmar. <laughs> and uh, of course, Louise woke up because when you get a phone call at 3.30, it's not usually good news, and we've had a few of those. But I said, no, it's okay, and I went down, and four times he called me, and each time we had about maybe 60 to 90 seconds, and he's not super good at English, and, uh, and finally he just gave up because the calls kept being disconnected. And I, but I learned that indeed he had become a member of the government about two or three months before the military coup that happened in Myanmar, and the military now runs the country. But I learned that he was safe. I actually learned that he's not with his family. He actually lives in the state. He was born in the state, and he lives in the state where the famous missionary Adoniram Judson did most of his ministry. About half of that state in Myanmar is Christian. Uh, the rest of it is almost 0%. But uh, he went, was back to his home state. His family's not with him. He's safe. He's doing well. That's about all I could learn. And then our phone connection again was lost. Christians all over the world, pressure is being exerted on them. All over the world. We too can go back to the book of Revelation. Just like these Christians, pressure was being exerted on them. And we need Jesus as well. We need to know him as faithful witness, as firstborn from the dead, as ruler of all the kings of the earth. Now, seven churches, is that an accident that there's seven? No, of course not. Seven, as we said with the Spirit, represents completeness and fullness. These individual churches represent the church, the big church, the universal church, both then, then, and for all time. Their problems and challenges are universal. That is why these letters speak to every generation and why they speak to our generation. All right. So what have we done so far? We've talked about Jesus revealed, and we've talked about Jesus revealed to the churches. Now, what should be our response? Look at verse 5. What should be our response? To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. I'm not sure if John sang this. He might have sang it. He's exploding with praise. This is what is called a doxology, the kind of songs that we sing after the service is over. He worships. What else could he do as he remembers Jesus, the freedom from guilt won by Jesus' sacrifice, a sacrifice through which he attained a kingdom, a new humanity. And we all have the same, this new humanity all has the same access to God, just as only a special elite privileged class in the Old Testament could walk into the presence of God. Now every believer has equal and open access to God, a kingdom of priests. Yet, what comfort is that, the readers might ask. 
John, what comfort is this? Now we are suffering. Now we are persecuted. Now we are beaten down. Now we are regarded with shame. The truth seems hidden. Our cause is falling behind. We are the dregs of the earth. We are counted as losers. No one with any earthly authority or power recognizes us as bearers of truth. So John answers that question. He rockets ahead to the future in verse 7 to see how Jesus will bring ultimate vindication. Look at verse 7. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him, so shall it be. Amen. Now again, this is hard to understand exactly what John intends. There are blended Old Testament prophecies here from Daniel 7 and Zechariah 12. This passage may indicate the coming of Jesus to judge Jerusalem in 70 AD. There is evidence for that. But it also bears hints of a greater, more universal and glorious return. God coming to and for all people, hints of the promise given to Abraham. All people on the face of the earth will be blessed. All the people on earth will mourn because of him. And that it hints of a more universal return is reinforced when we get to the end of the book. Now, perhaps both are encompassed here. Jesus coming in judgment in 70 AD and Jesus coming at the end of history. His coming throughout the Bible was, has always been a two-sided coin, bringing both judgment and salvation. Regardless of what we believe about the sequence or timing of Jesus' return, the point is that when it happens, the children of God will be recognized, revealed, and vindicated. Their contempt will be removed, and they will inherit the earth as Jesus promised. You see, his appearance is going to shake the world, and it will turn the world upside down. His coming will bring great sorrow to those who rejected him. And you might be sitting there thinking, Come on, Chris, you don't, how, you really, I mean, this sounds like science fiction. This sounds so fantastical. It sounds like a fairy tale. It sounds impossible. You really mean this. Again, almost as if John anticipates your objection. He hammers again in verse 8 this staggering claim, claim of a God Sovereign over human history. Look at verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, Alpha and Omega is not a vitamin supplement. Nor is, is it a computer program. Let me lean into one commentator here who's just very helpful to explain this clearly, Dennis Johnson. Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. 
So the name signifies that the speaker stands sovereign over both ends of history and everything in between. And look at how he defines, helps us, Johnson helps us to define this phrase, who is, who was, who is coming. He is the one who ever lives, who is, and who therefore exercises control over the whole sweep of history from its dawn, Alpha, who was, to its sunset, Omega, who is coming. Now later in Revelation, the Alpha and Omega will be likened to the first and the last, the beginning and the end, and in chapter 1, verse 17, Jesus will lay claim himself to the title, the first and the last. So to wrap up here, and just, just for a, a couple moments, what do we do? Besides this response of praise, which should be emanating from our hearts in the same ways that John's heart erupted with praise when we see Jesus so should our hearts but what else I'd like you to ask the question this morning as we begin to reflect on Jesus resurrected Jesus ascended Jesus enthroned I want to ask you the question have you missed his face have you seen only his back Job said that after his experience with God, God, my ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Resurrected, glorified Jesus. Is this the Jesus that you know? Or is he just a good buddy with some special human qualities that help you through tough times? You might even let, you might even let him grab the steering wheel of your life on occasion. Who is the Jesus that you pray to? All-powerful? With unparalleled authority? Or is he to you a faceless divine being, an Oz-like figure who knows the secrets of the universe and can pull the right levers? Oh yeah, he's powerful enough to prevent bad things from happening to you, but docile enough to never demand too much from you. You see, before Jesus walks among these churches that we're, we're going to see, it's a terrifying thought, Jesus walks among these churches. Before we get to that, he first provides a glorious glimpse of himself. That's our greatest need, to see him, to know him as he is not as an extension of our needs. What is that? What do I do if, what do I do? Well, the place that we start is that we repent. We repent. We acknowledge. We confess. We repent. If you have made him into something that you want, you've torn him down from his glorious throne to become something akin to an idol that you put on your fireplace mantle, he's there when you need him. Oh, he possesses God-like powers, but he's still under my control. Let him break out of the human boxes you have placed in him in order to be God. When you pray this week, and let me encourage you this week, how about a practical to-do? How about 
Five days this week, you begin your day with prayer. How about that for a starting point? And when you pray, say nothing for the first few moments and just be still in his presence. And let your words be few, as Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, as you approach him. And let his words quiet your soul and let his love fill your spirit as you sit before him. And then lastly, I want to encourage you to come next week as Pastor Nick takes us through the second part of this chapter, which is just incredible. We're going to meet Jesus in a phenomenal way. And we're going to see how John meets him in a moment both of sheer terror, yet one that brings unexplainable peace and wonder. Again, let me just quote Dennis Johnson here one more time. Because I can't say it better. He writes, we need to see Jesus to meet his blazing eyes of heart-searching holiness, to wake up to the trumpet blast of his voice, to respond to his jealous demand for exclusive and passionate loyalty. That's the response for this morning. You bow your heads and pray with me. Nick and Kim, you guys can come on up. Father, let your heart-searching holiness run through this place, revealing who you are, that we too, like John, might respond with praise to him who loves us, to him who loves us. When I have every reason to believe every circumstance the condition of my body, the place of my finances, the brokenness in my relationships, the wayward son or daughter, the marriage that isn't working, the depression that I can't escape. When every other thing tells me that you don't love me, Jesus, may we come back to the one who is a faithful witness who says to the church and says to us as individuals, I love you and I died for you to free you. Let us hear that, Father, this morning.